Auckland, which I commend to you again, 20 bucks down the road at Reformers Bookshop. It's worth getting and reading and thinking further beyond um, the short time we have together this afternoon and in our growth groups to keep thinking about complex and deep issues. The question that's before us tonight is that of um, doesn't religion cause violence? We're thinking about those things, those barriers, those obstacles to people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, the objections that people might have that kind of stop them from walking through the door or embracing uh, what the Bible says about Jesus. And the question of religious violence is one that's often brought up. And you can understand why. I didn't have to look very far this week uh, to find examples. Sadly, this was the headline yesterday. The UK raises terror threat to severe after Europe attacks. Right? That was just this week. The headline news because of the violent attacks in Austria and in France. And what was the motivation of those attacks? Religious devotion. The attacker claims allegiance to Islamic State. But see, devout Muslims aren't simply perpetrators of religious violence. They're victims too. So this week in Myanmar, there'll be an election. And a significant group of people, the Rohingya Muslims, won't be allowed to vote because they've been stripped of their citizenship, and even worse, they've been subject to systematic and targeted violence. And there's a question at the moment before the International Court of Justice of whether or not what is happening to the Rohingya Muslims is genocide. That's today, right? Here, the perpetrators of violence against the Rohingya Muslims come from the Buddhist majority, right? But if you said to both Buddhists and Muslims the suggestion that their religions are violent, they wouldn't want to be lumped in with those violent expressions of their faith. They would want to claim that there's teaching within Buddhism and teaching within Islam that's peace-loving and peace-filled and peace-making. And Christians then have to defend themselves in a similar kind of way, distancing ourselves from violent uh, atrocities, violent conflict around the world and down through the ages, violent conflict that had the flag of Jesus attached to it. The Crusades, a thousand years ago, but still trotted out as an example of Christian uh, uh, violence, complex as it is. Um, and part of the reason that the Crusades keep bring, being brought up is because of the stories of unnecessary and cruel slaughter of innocent people in the midst of the crusades that continue to outrage and disturb us as they should to this day. But what about in the face of Hitler's distortions of Jesus' teaching when Christian pastors stood by silently in the middle of the Holocaust? What about the racial divide that's still felt, felt by so many in America? How did Christians find themselves endorsing slavery and the violent treatment of African-Americans with Bible verses attached to it. You could keep going, couldn't you? We could excavate history forever with examples of religious-inspired violence. And it might be, if we did that for the rest of our time together tonight, it might be tempting to draw the same conclusion as Christopher Hitchens when he says that religion kills 
It simply poisons everything. Well, in her chapter on this question, Rebecca McLaughlin begins uh, with a quote from philosopher Bertrand Russell, who's writing in 1930, in between the two world wars. He says this about religion. He says, religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethic of scientific cooperation in the place of the old fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It's possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age, but if so, it will be necessary first to slay the dragon that guards the door, and this dragon is religion. Slay the dragon of religion. And John Lennon, his song keeps us all wondering that if we were to imagine a world without war and a world without violence, are we in fact imagining a world without religion? Is that the secret to world peace? Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. Imagine there's no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Is that the solution? Simply no religion. Is that the key to world peace? Slaying the dragon of religion. But see, when you do slay the dragon of religion, according to Bertrand Russell, and you do expand John Lennon's thought experiment to imagine if we took away religion and all religiously inspired war and violence in the world, are we left with people living life at peace? Do we find a history that is free from war? Or is it possible that religion is being made of too easy a scapegoat for all the violence and evil of the world? Because as we take away religiously inspired violence and war and evil atrocities throughout the centuries, when you take those things out of the picture of history, you don't end up looking at a history that's free from violence and war and oppression and evil. Because it's all too easy just to put your finger on violence and atrocities motivated by irreligion. 60 plus million people killed in the former Soviet Union in the name of irreligion. 35 million people dead in Mao's communist China. Irreligion is responsible for violence and atrocities too. Actually, in 2005, the uh, authors Phillips and Axelrod published this whopping great big three-volume encyclopedia of war where they analysed 1,763 wars throughout history. Frightening, depressing kind of projects to do. What did they find? Out of 1,763 catalogued wars in history, 123 of them were attributed to religion. About 7% of wars. So imagine a world without religion, you don't end up imagining people living life at peace. You slay the dragon of religion and you still end up with war and atrocity and violence and evil. 
Maybe there's something not in religion that causes people to be violent. Maybe there's something in people that causes people to tend towards violence. Maybe there's something in people that tends towards war and hostility and oppression. The Bible says, doesn't it, that at the heart of violence and conflict and oppression and inhumanity is the fundamental issue of sin. Enmity with God leads to enmity with other people. Think back to the storyline of the Bible, Genesis 3. Humanity breaks their relationship with God, rejects his rightful rule and his loving care. And it doesn't take long, does it? The very next generation for the very first murder to turn up in the storyline of humanity. It's rejection of God. It's enmity with him that causes enmity between people, between nations, between people groups. And so the question becomes, when you think about religion and um, what causes violence, is to kind of look to the DNA, to the beating heart of a worldview and say, what is it in that worldview? What is the beating heart? What is the DNA of how this is meant to be lived out and expressed in the world? And does it tend towards violence and oppression or does it tend towards reconciliation and peace? And the contention you have to make is that if... Christianity is about following Jesus. If it's about the way of Christ, his model, his person, his work, then it becomes very hard to say that violence and oppression is at the very heart of Christianity. We saw that in Luke chapter 6, right? Jesus talking about the beating heart of his kingdom, the DNA of Christianity, of what it looks like for someone to follow after him. And it's the opposite of violence and oppression. It's loving your enemy. It's doing good for those who hate you. So while people do perpetrate violent evil in the name of Christ... You have to say, if you read the Gospels, that they're acting thoroughly inconsistently with the Jesus of the the Scriptures, with the Jesus of history. McLaughlin writes, Christianity humiliates violence. Christianity does not glorify violence. Let's hear it from the lips of Jesus himself. Have a look at Luke 6, verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn, them, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's the golden rule, so-called, right, that lies at the heart of the way of Jesus. Um, And it goes further than that, doesn't it? It's not just do to others as you would have them do to you. It's do to others the opposite of what they do to you. If someone mistreats you, you don't mistreat them. 
If someone hates you, you do not hate them. You do good to those who hate you. You work to bless and to build up those who hate you. It's extraordinary. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's counter our, our natural desire for retribution, for fairness. Because it's not fairness, it's grace. Grace is about receiving what you do not deserve and what you cannot earn. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what we've received from the hands of God. And so if you want to belong to his kingdom, with him as king, with him as saviour, to follow in his footsteps, to walk in his way, then it's to love like he loves, which is to love your enemies. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that when you think about Christian martyrdom with Jesus at the very centre, it's so different to what we see around the world, where martyrdom becomes you lay down your life in order to take the lives of other people, to take more life, the lives of your enemies. For Jesus, it is lay down your life to give life to your enemies. Christianity doesn't glorify violence, it humiliates it. As Jesus himself turns the other cheek. Turning the other cheek is a a picture of humiliation, of being willingly and publicly humiliated to have your reputation and your identity humiliated. Willingly do that without retribution, without justice, for the sake of the other person, in order to do good to your enemies. It's extraordinary, isn't it? This is what Rebecca McLaughlin writes. You'll see it up on the screen. She says, without question, many acts of violence have been perpetrated by Christians throughout the centuries. In some cases, when committed in defence of the vulnerable, they may have been justified according to Christian ethics. In others, they have been utterly irreconcilable with the teachings of Jesus. But to this day, the ethical standards by which we judge episodes of violence like the Crusades in all their complexity are those given to us by Christianity, which breaks down the them and us of tribal ethics and insists on the humanity and the worth of one's enemies. Which we talked about last week, right? Christianity, at its heart, breaks down those tribal ethics, insisting on the humanity of even your enemy, and so wanting to treat your enemy with grace and respect and dignity, wanting to bless those who persecute you, wanting to pray for those who hate you, wanting to do good for those who wish you ill. Recognising that they are humans, recognising that they are in need of what you are in need of, peace with God through the reconciling life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That lies at the very beating heart, the DNA of Christianity, is love for enemies. It's right there in who Jesus is and what he did. That while we were still sinners... 
that while we were powerless, that while we were God's enemies, Jesus died for us. It's the very centre of the Christian faith and is meant to be the very centre of the Christian life. As we follow the Lord Jesus, as we know that he has made us who are enemies with our Heavenly Father, he has made us friends through his reconciling life and death and resurrection. And so the mandate for Jesus, if we were to follow in his ways, to lay down our lives for our enemies, to meet violence with prayer, to meet persecution with blessing, to meet hate with love. I read a story this week of a man who's been thoroughly mistreated and whose reputation has been dragged through the mud, whose financial stability has been taken away and whose job is in jeopardy because he's not willing to compromise his Christian ethics. And as he weighs all the options available to him and how do you carve out a path forward in a way that honours Jesus, the thing he kept saying to his friends with their advice was no retaliation. No retaliation. As his reputation is dragged through the mud, it's the first century equivalent of being slapped in the face. Publicly humiliated. And as he follows the Lord Jesus, he says, turn the other cheek. It's the mandate of Jesus. It's the model of Jesus for those who would belong to his kingdom. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Then your reward will be great because you will be children of the most high God because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You see how it's reflecting God's glory and his character to the world? When you treat mercifully, you treat with kindness the ungrateful and the wicked, not seeking to retaliate, not seeking retribution, not seeking to defend your reputation or protect your interests, but open yourself up to suffering and hardship and persecution as you follow him and seek to show kindness and mercy even to the ungrateful and the wicked. And if we are to be heralds of this kind of kingdom, if we are to be people who reflect Jesus and his loving rule and care to the world, then this is the kind of picture of the Christian life, of Christian discipleship. This is the beating heart of Christianity. Not seeking to violently defend our own interests, not seeking to defend our own reputation or to squash our enemies, or to defeat those who oppose us. But to show undeserved kindness. Grace. Even to those who hate us. The challenge is, as you read passages like this, and you see the shape and the mandate and the model of Jesus' kingdom... The challenge is to not hear it as simply a guilt 
inducing kind of thump in the side of the head. Knowing how much we fall short of this standard and how difficult it is to walk in these footsteps. And first and foremost, we must see that this is Jesus. He is the king of his kingdom. He is the one who perfectly fulfills this for us. He's the one who loved his enemies even to the cross. But also to see that while we should expect growth, while we should expect change, while we should hold this standard up and keep pursuing it as we trust in Jesus and follow him, recognise that we'll always fall short, that we'll be a church that's always full of people who are less mature than they ought to be, who who are less gracious than they ought to be, and who are journeying on their way to his perfected future. Without expecting that the church throughout the centuries and even in the present is going to live up to the standard and the reality of their Saviour King in all his perfection. Sometimes we get into trouble because we try to claim the blessings uh, and, the, and the standard of Jesus' perfected future into the present. And so we're filled with disappointment, we're dissatisfied with ourselves and with those around us. Because the church isn't what we want her to be. Our own lives aren't what we want them to be. We fall short of Jesus' standard and we seek retribution and we fail to show the kind of grace that we ought. And part of the challenge with questions like this and It's all too easy to point to examples where Christians have failed and the church has failed. And often that's disappointing and dissatisfying because we're expecting the perfection of Jesus' future kingdom right here in the present. Uh, When I was in high school, I was in a play and a friend came to watch me in this play and um, Uh, You know how it goes, you do the first half of the play and then you have intermission and then you do the second half. And in the second half of the play, I noticed that his seat was empty. Because when the lights came up and the curtain went down for intermission, he went, oh, okay, and went home. Thinking that was a really disappointing ending. (laughs) And that storyline didn't really make much sense. And he was disappointed, right? He was disillusioned because what he thought was the ending, what he thought was kind of the finish line was really in the middle. And for us as Christians, while our hope is guaranteed and it is certain, it is future-oriented, and we look for Jesus' perfected future, but it lies in the future. And while we get real and true and good tastes of that now, we get glimpses, it's incomplete. It's still a longing that we have by hope, certain but in the future. And so we should expect a change that is imperfect, growth that is slow. We should expect disappointment. We should expect dissatisfaction. All of which should help us long for that future where Jesus says the lion will lie down with the lamb. And his perfect peace will cover the world.
And so in response to the all too easily excited examples of violence and malice and hatred and discord in the church, in history, in our own personal lives, the response ought to be to long to grow in this kind of godliness so that those who who find that they stumble at the violent history of people who would claim religious devotion, they can see in you and in me the kind of love for your enemies, gracious, humble, merciful kind of love for those even who want your who who want to do you harm. After the pattern of the Lord Jesus and with confidence in him, the one who laid down his life for his enemies in order to deal with our enmity with God and ultimately with one another. And while it is easy to cite those examples from history, Thankfully, you can look around and still see people living out with passion and with courage and with strength the kind of faith that Jesus called his followers to reflect. McLaughlin finishes her chapter quoting this article from the New York Times entitled Evangelicals Without the Blowhards. And this is what was written in the New York Times. Go to the front lines, at home and abroad, in the battle against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking or genocide. Some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live out their faith, who have understood the kind of love that Jesus has shown the world and the way that his sacrificial care and service for those around him is meant to be reflected in the lives and the discipleship of those who would follow him. You think of Catherine Hamlin and her 60-year devotion to dealing with obstetric fistulas in Ethiopia. I love that there is now a Sydney ferry with her name on it. Someone who, as she followed the Lord Jesus and sought to be faithful embraced 60 years of living in poverty and hardship to care for those who were different from her, to give them dignity, to give them worth, to acknowledge their humanity even when they were ostracised and cut off from their own families and communities because she had understood the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with more and more courageous Christians trusting in Jesus and walking in his ways, those all too many examples of violence and atrocities in our past will become smaller as obstacles for people as they see authentic Christian faith lived out in this world for the good of others, even our enemies. As you think about your own life and history and opportunities and your own growth in Christian discipleship, why don't you close your eyes and listen to Isaiah 53 
that points us prophetically to the Lord Jesus. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet... Who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. He was numbered with his enemies and made intercession for them. Amen.